Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have a very special guest, Matthias Pertula. It's an honor I, to be here. <laughs> did I say your name right? I mean, like you'd think I would know by now, but. No, that's actually really good. If you want to be really fancy, you can say Matias Pertula, but I just, I, I'm not, I don't expect wow. anybody to say that, but yeah, that is it's all amazing. good. You yeah. pronounce that amazing. I can tell you've been doing that for a while. Yeah. <laughs> for 37 years. Yeah. 37. Jeez. Yeah. Well, it is an honor to have you here on this podcast. Um, one of my all-time favorite students and i think actually i think that one of the funniest photos i have of my former students you're in it yep. and you're one of the reasons why it's so funny yeah um this was actually more park college 2008 and 2009 um you were in political philosophy <laughs> and yeah. i remember you sat in the back with uh the fields kids the, yep. yeah you remember them michael, oh i remember them very very well michael yeah, and michelle michelle yeah. went on to be famous uh and then uh you and michael were in my symbolic logic class the following spring and thank God I, for photos. I don't have any photos from political philosophy. I wish I would have gotten some, but um, I ended up seeing Michelle again at, at Pepperdine when she went to Pepperdine because I was at Pepperdine at the same time. Yeah. So right. it was a little weird seeing. <laughs> um, but so I have this picture. I'm going to see if I can find it really quick. Um, but Matthias, and I love the way you pronounced your own name. How did you say it again? Matias Pertula. Okay, what that is an accent. What accent is that? I mean, I know, That's, but yeah, it's originally from Finland, of course. Finland. Yes. Land in the far, far north. I just remember having a hard time like figuring you out. I mean, I, I there's nothing to figure out about an individual except for their individuality. Right. So in, in a sense that that's kind of a stupid thing to say, but I just remember you had a Finnish background. And so I expected you to be kind of like a communist or something like a socialist or something like that. <laughs> Not that all Finns are like that, but, but I, I mean, I don't know much about Scandinavia, but, but what, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, no, I am uh, originally from Finland, but I was actually born in Australia. So that was back in 1986. Okay. Brisbane. And uh, my dad, both of my parents are from Finland originally. My dad just and his family, they immigrated to central Australia. And that's where he ended up growing up. And when he was, um, I can't remember, like 18, 19, somewhere in that range, went back to Finland, basically. And met my mother there and the rest is history from there. And I, we kind of traveled the world as a family for a while. And then when uh, I came around, when the family happened to be in Australia at the time, and um, I don't remember much of that, but we moved pretty much right after like a year and a half after I was born, we moved back to Finland. And so all of my kind of childhood memories, all that kind of takes place in Finland and uh, southern part of Finland over there. So, and I still have a lot of family there and 
to go back and forth. And but I, my family, we moved to the U.S. back in 1998, so that was a long time ago. I was about 12 at the time. Wow. Um, so your first language is Finnish. Yeah, it really was. But I, I did grow wow. up, you know, obviously with my dad who spoke fluent English. So I grew up reading like the English Bible and some other English books with my dad and stuff. So it was good. Now, yeah. were you a Christian when you took my class? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So does the the Christian influence, the biblical influence, does that inform your your politics? As it was a political um, philosophy class, and it seemed like you, I don't know, it seemed like you enjoyed my approach uh, to things. And I was, I was kind of, I think I was kind of obvious about where I was coming from. I didn't want to be sneaky about it, but. No, definitely wasn't sneaky at all. But yeah, yeah. I mean, to answer the first question, yeah, absolutely. It informs my, a lot of my personal political ideology, I guess you could say. So, yeah. you know absolutely influences that i think probably most faiths you know if you're really practicing that's going to inform your 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 decisions in life in general so yeah absolutely well that makes sense um i am looking for okay so i've got i found the the photo and let's see if i, I can... know exactly which one you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> let me let me see if i can share it uh effectively um i think here I we go justin, my justin bieber hair do it during that time screen sharing has failed to start okay let me try to see if i can i'll give it i'll give it a shot here and uh here we go I think this might work can you see anything yeah i can see it Perfect. okay there it is this is my <laughs> Moorpark college folder and i'm trying to zoom in but I'm, I'm hoping it captures here and there it is right there there it is um the, there's uh um matthias there you are and it, see the funny thing about this is it looks like you're ho holding my arm that's the funny thing about it is it looks like <laughs> we're a couple we're a couple and uh there's kelsey yeah and i actually think she works for the cia now she went to ucla like you did you ended yeah. up going to ucla yeah, yeah. did you guys know each other at ucla uh we ran into each other a little bit i remember so but I, it's so big you just kind of lose track so the school. and then there's there's michael fields yeah michelle's brother and uh or i guess he would say uh he would say she's my sister and then this kid right here i can't remember his name which is sad but i had him he had he took my class again at cal state northridge so nice. you think i would know um but yeah this is funny uh <laughs> michelle's laughing so michelle saw that you look like you were holding my arm <laughs> <laughs> that is so hilarious i can't i can't even uh yeah. that that is classic matthias and that was, was symbolic logic of 2009 yeah was so a good time. yeah now where did you go after moorpark college 
So after Moore Park, I uh, went to UCLA, finished out my two degrees there, the history and political science. Uh, from there on, I worked for a little while, but then got actually a full ride scholarship to uh, Southeastern University, and that was in Central Florida. And I'm studying business there, so I did my master's degree there. Wow. Um, the you got a full ride right for that? That's cool. Yeah, it was very, it was awesome. It was a total, total God thing. And, you know, really grateful, obviously, that I got, got the opportunity and got to work with the president there for several years during my degree and after. Um, met my wife there. Uh, but my, as you probably already know, my heart was always kind of in policy and politics and wanted to work in, in the, in the DC realm. And 2016, my wife and I, we decided to move and, uh, make it happen in DC. So, and I worked at Brookings first for about a year and a half or so. And then after that, I worked at a place called International Christian Concern. And they were uh, basically a, a religious freedom uh, oriented organization. They do a lot of aid work and um, policy work, of course, that's the arm that I got to lead. And I was there for about four years, four, no, almost five years, actually. So, and then from there on, I came to AFPI. So I've been here now for about eight, nine months. So, which has been awesome. It was a, been a great transition, awesome team here and just love what we're doing. So what was Brookings like? Cause I always think of them as kind of left of center. Yeah, I think, yeah, they all do. I mean, I think that's kind of the perception there, but I'd say like my experience was really good. I got to work in the foreign policy department. So there's a lot of good, uh, a lot of great thinkers and writers there that I really enjoyed connecting with and learning with. And it was, it was for me, it was a great um, kind of um, at that time, it was a great kind of opportunity to kind of get familiar with how the think tank land works in DC and kind of understand how all that plays. And yeah, um, so it was, it was a really rewarding experience that way. So what yeah. is it like working for, a think tank well what's, a lot what's of your research. yeah what do you yeah like do you mind uh if someone's yeah. in col college and listening to this uh yeah. what you know what could they expect or you know they if they have no idea what what this is what this is like um yeah you you walk through is it is it like uh mad men the show where you walk through all the secretaries and you go Basically. to your office yeah. And they're yeah. all typing on typewriters. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's basically it, you know, and it's, you know, yeah. Don Draper, you know, if the you're phone, a senior fellow, phone, you're basically... you make yourself a drink and your phone rings. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. There's really no deviation from that ever whatsoever. So that's what I pretty much thought it was. Yeah. So. <laughs> now, is it something you go into? Is it an office you go into or? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's, I mean, Brookings Heritage, AFPI, so many others, like they've obviously got brick and mortars, but there's a lot of, you know, fellows and senior fellows and so on that probably work remotely and they come into DC when they need to, or they travel a lot. Folks travel all over the time, all over the place, all the time, wherever they're maybe needing to speak or have meetings or whatever. But it's, yeah, I mean, policy, you know, I would say like think tanks are very much like, another um higher step of you know higher education even maybe i don't know like uh -huh. a next step of you know so a lot of 
a lot of research, a lot of writing. We do a lot of events, obviously do a lot of speaking as well, like when it's a relevant time to talk about your area of expertise. And uh -huh. so, yeah, so today's been an exciting day on, on the SCOTA side. We saw a couple of decisions come down. One in particularly in my area that was that was kind of cool and what, what which which decision was that? That was Groff versus DeJoy, and this is about the postal worker who basically wanted a religious exemption. He was from like I believe it was Western Pennsylvania, so rural Pennsylvania there, and um, Christian guy didn't want to work on for on Sundays, but uh, due to some circumstances, they started to schedule him, and this went on for a couple of years and. He didn't want to show up anymore um, on Sundays, didn't want to do that. Um, and then eventually kind of led to the point that he had to resign. I think it was 2019 he had to resign. And so he ended up suing. Um, and now the Supreme Court came down on a unanimous decision, which is pretty awesome, in favor of him. So okay. that's going to do. Yeah. So we're actually right now kind of going through all the kind of the decision points on it and so it was a big win for religious freedom. So the guy's going to get to go to church on Sunday without being forced to work. So, <laughs> wow. So that's good. Gosh, huh? Um, that's interesting. And it'll, have, it'll have some implications throughout. Obviously, well, I mean, you have to see exactly what that looks like, but it'll have some long-lasting implications, which is great, uh, kind of throughout the workforce in the U.S. So, yeah, we'll see how now that you, plays out. You have the MBA and that training. What was the link between the MBA and, and going into the think tank world? So I worked at Southeastern University. I was there um, working with the president, kind of like a chief of staff role, um, basically managing his office, communications, mm -hmm. and a lot of government relations work there, That's uh, which was great. I really enjoyed always the government relations side. Also, I did some adjunct teaching as well. I was in the College of Business there. Uh, and then I was also doing some um, coursework at Harvard Extension School. I did like seven or eight courses through there and was pursuing uh, another master's degree. But um, then kids started coming along and I, I decided I'm going to be a dad now. And so we'll put the studies on hold for the time being. So you got, was, you got married during this time? Yeah, I was at in 2015. We got married. So, wow. yeah. We got two boys now, which is awesome. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're. I love being a dad. It's the best best job in the world. <laughs> what are their names? Lincoln is the oldest. He's five, and then Cade. He's five months. Oh, those are cool names. Yeah. Those are awesome names. Good. Uh, you know, so, so, so now going back to Brookings the think tank issue so it's not like it's top down where you know your boss says work on this is it more collegial you kind of agree to uh cover certain things and put out mm -hmm. a certain amount of writing or whatever yeah i'd say so i mean my my role was very administrative at brookings at the time oh really basically okay. yeah i was working with the uh, Vice President of Foreign Policy at the time. His name was is Bruce Jones. Great guy. Um, really enjoyed working with him. And um, so, yeah, but I, I had an opportunity to help him with some research pieces, but really it was, I, I had a strong administrative role in his office. But generally speaking, I'd say Brookings and think tanks, the ones that I'm somewhat familiar with, it's pretty collegial and pretty much 
um, kind of across the board, we're working together. Um, personally, I try to bring that element into the, into the, I, I, I don't like hierarchies. Usually I just like everybody kind of working together on things and whatever your gift set is, that's what I think is the best way to get people going on things. That, so, that's a nice management style. Yeah, I think so too. Certainly when did you, when did you, when did you figure out that was your management style? Um, I'd say probably actually during the Brookings years or even before that at Southeastern, they had a very strong servant leadership culture. And I just, I, I love that. Um, my, my MBA actually was pretty management heavy, management and leadership heavy. So mm -hmm. we read all the, all the leadership gurus, Maxwell, you know, Cotter and all the others and, um, John Gordon and everybody else about how you motivate your team and set them up and have that organizational you know, energy and dynamic. I huh. really always appreciated that. And they're just, they're great guys. They write good stuff. And I mean, Maxwell is probably one of the most uh, profound leadership guys out there. That's done some good amount, good amount of research and writing on it. So, okay. and it works. It's, it just works. That servant leadership model. That's, that's the thing that works. So, hmm. yeah. And what, when you say it works, you mean it's, it's the most effective at, at, producing yep. uh flourishing you know including productivity but also just happiness and satisfaction and yeah strong work culture man like absolutely like when you get rid of that then of course there needs to be a leadership structure but you know you don't bring as leaders you don't bring that you know better than thou attitude and you know i i carry the title therefore do what i say kind of thing it's it's more about how me as the leader can serve you, my team, to make sure that you succeed and you become the best possible employee person in this team. And you're gonna, you're just gonna knock it out of the park. So that, I, I find that that's the that's the best way to really lead. You know, and it yeah. motivates. It's motivating, and it's the way that I think it's the Jesus model. Personally, he's all about the how you bring out the best in people and how you push them forward and challenge them and you know and then sometimes you got to let them go not in the sense like you fire them but sometimes they people reach their their point and they need you've done all you can for them and it's time for them to expand in their leadership and grow so if you can't provide that as a leader you need to find a way that you can support them to find that new context somewhere else where they can grow and they can flourish and continue to do what God's called them to do. Hmm. Wow. Now you work at AFPI now. Yes. Let me, let me share the website here. Um, and the piece I re most recently read here's AFPI. And I, it's probably not very clear on YouTube, but uh, AFPI stands for America Amer first policy Institute. Oh my gosh. The, yeah. So from Brookings to America first policy Institute, uh, is your former boss having a heart attack right now? You know, I haven't spoken to him in a while. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. So. Well, what an interesting, uh, topic you have religious freedom challenges transcend the international and domestic divide. Mm. Religious freedom is, is your deal. That's what you're working on. Yeah. Absolutely. This has um, been a passion of mine for a long time. So 
I guess uh, that really got cultivated even more uh, in the last five years, five or six years when I worked in my previous role and just, you know, we were serving persecuted Christians, but also like other persecuted religious minorities around the world. And I think that that was a really um, definitive time for me because I realized just how, um, how central this freedom really is, you know, just like to the human experience and to be, you know, I remember still like when I started the job and I was, or I was thinking that I'm going into a very niche field, like this is a very small slice of the whole foreign policy complex or something. And I remember I, Ambassador Brownback actually was affirmed um, or he got through the Senate hearings and all that and was confirmed or affirmed as the ambassador for international religious freedom in 2018, I think it was. So I remember going to his reception and I was thinking it's probably going to be like, you know, 10 or 15 people here. I mean, you know, <laughs> I walk in and it's at the U.S. Institute of Peace and it's just packed. I mean, it has there's hundreds of people here and all representing different, you know, organizations that are working on international religious freedom or just religious freedom in general. And I remember just being blown away going, wow, like this is a massive issue. Like, ah. There's a lot of interest in this issue. And so, yeah, so that was a really, and then, you know, from there, I, I think I really started to understand just how, how big this issue is, um, especially internationally, where there is um, just a lot of persecution of all religions, all religions, basically. So, yeah, and I don't think we really appreciate that as much in the West, and we really should. We should really begin to understand just how precious this is. So wow. Um, so yeah, quick story there, I guess. <laughs> I have to admit, I, I have not done a lot of work on religious uh free exercise stuff uh you know outside of US border, right? Um mm -hmm. I mean I I'm broadly aware of it, you know, mostly like from the Cold War, you know, you know people being persecuted by the communists and of course the yeah. Nazi era, the national socialists. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, this is uh, what's, what's the focus of your piece here uh, so, in, Amer in America first term. So what I tried to do with this piece is kind of bridge a gap that I, that I saw happening in the, kind of in the whole religious freedom space right now, because whenever I worked on the issue, a lot of organizations would always say, oh, we just focus on international issues. We don't do anything in the domestic, you know. There's always kind of like that caveat that a lot of organizations would say. And But, you know, and I understood it. And I still I get it. I get why they don't want to do it because the domestic can be a little bit more divisive, I guess. <laughs> you know, but even on the Hill, like whenever, you know, you go and brief a member on an issue that's happening or some attack or bombing happened at a church or whatever usually whether there's a d or an r after their name didn't matter they were all in like the most liberal wing or the most conservative wing they were always all about um international religious freedom and were willing to work on it and um you know do something issue statements write letters whatever it is that they were they they wanted to do but so that was really that was really great to see kind of that bipartisanship and unity on it but soon as it kind of delved into the domestic issues, then you start kind of seeing the splits, you know, people thinking differently about the issues. And I never liked that because I, you know, 
to me, like when I studied more and more of these issues and began to really kind of understand the full scope of religious freedom. And to me, it's just, a, it's a global thing now, like whether you like it or not, like it's, there are, there's been traditional cases, even in the U S like, you know, for decades now that have forces have tried to claw back the religious freedom or to limit it somehow, some way. That's why like today's cases even are just so definitive. And I just think that it's under even greater threat now uh, than it's ever been like in the U S and in the West, you know, and I, and when I look at cases like that, I was dealing with in like India and Pakistan and the South Asian countries, that was kind of my portfolio that I dealt with, I, I I couldn't help but notice that I saw just so many similarities with the way that, you know, religious minorities were being targeted, being treated, you know, and, you know, Pakistan, if you say something as a Christian about the Muslim faith, that's, you know, unbecoming, or if you disagree with it, you can be slapped with a blasphemy charge. And I talk about that in the, yeah. the piece there carry some heavy duty penalties like one of the greatest cases there that i mentioned was asia bibi you know she was actually in death row for almost 10 years in pakistan because she said something that the majority muslim community didn't like um so but you know this is obviously it's religious freedom it's freedom of expression freedom of speech all those kinds of things added in there those layers but, you know, but I see the same kind of stuff happening in the West now. Like if you say some conservative Christian principles or whatever that I believe that, you know, there's only, you know, two genders or I believe that marriage is from a Christian's perspective, it's between a man and a woman. You can get, you know, publicly just totally lambasted over that, you know, saying all kinds of things. Um, probably the most prominent Western case that I also mentioned in there was the Finnish MP, actually, Baby Rasanen, who I know very well, love her to death. Um, she just posted a tweet. You know, she said, you know, because the the Finnish Lutheran Church was the which is the official state church of Finland. I think it's the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Finland. Wow. And they became yeah, they became um an official partner on the on a gay pride event day in Helsinki back in like 2019. And and, you know, she's a devout Christian and she's, she's, you know, been a part of these. Is um, this the current MP of Finland? Yeah. She's a current MP. So really? Wow. Yeah. And, and she you, you as, know her? Yeah. Yeah. And she's served, served as interior minister of Finland for a long time. Um, she's, she's got a very like pronounced, like political background. Right. And, you know, public service, you know, been in all that. What she's is an she MD. Say? Wow. So, but she posted a tweet kind of and it questioned why the church was partnering on this event mm-hmm. when they teach something completely different. And then with it posted a picture of Romans one, I think it was. You know? Oh wow. So it was a heavy she's not, she's not messing around. Jeez. No, no, no. She she stood but I mean it's so anyway, that caught a there's a couple other things that she had been a part of before, but you know, well, that's um, a great, that's a great point. I mean, I, I, how many other people are thinking the exact same thing? She's just saying it out loud. Right. But so she did that and, you know, it just brought an onslaught of public criticism on Twitter and like oh people gosh. just lambasting in her um, to the point that the general prosecutor actually ordered a criminal investigation to her on this <laughs> case. Oh, for hate. Is that a, is that a crime? Is hate speech is a crime? She's trying to make it into one. Oh, I see. This, 
So, in fact, she's publicly said, and this is the general prosecutor, that, you know, the Bible should not be believed. You can cite it in, pap in papers and things as a point of discussion, but to believe it is a crime and you shouldn't do that. And, like, it's I'm misquoting her a little bit here, I'm sure, but that's essentially well, the that's extent of it. That sounds like what she's saying is if you yeah. believe this and you say it, because what's the yeah. point of, well, you should be able to say it whether you believe it or not, Absolutely. Uh, just because that's part of thinking, you know, I yeah. mean, sometimes you have to think through things and part of being a rational human being. So, yeah, but, you know, lo and behold, obviously the, the police investigation found no wrongdoing. The general prosecutor didn't even care. Like she filed charges, criminal charges against her anyway. She went through the lower courts. The lower courts acquitted her. The general prosecutor didn't care. And she filed, uh, she appealed the decision. And I believe it's now going to the Supreme Court of Finland, which is, um, I think it's happening this summer. Or I'm not quite sure of the dates when the hearing happens. But I believe she's going to get acquitted again because it's just, preposterous that you know she's being put through this insane hmm. public public you know persecution so yeah well that's really interesting because they have a state church and that that makes it even more complex i think because yeah um, yeah why would you have a problem with that tweet if you have a state church that teaches the exact same thing that the tweet is saying, you know, or the you would think that that would be the thing you would target, not a tweet. Right. But, wow. This is amazing. Wow. Yeah. It's a really, and the reason why I kind of, I, I, I put that case obviously is, you know, it's Finland is regarded as, and often ranked like the happiest, one of the most freest countries. You're talking about a Western liberal democracy here. I've, and he I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's, and you're having to see this kind of a thing happen there that's coming from basically the attorney general equivalent of Finland, which is the general prosecutor there. Yeah. Wow. So, and I want to kind of Disturbing. use this piece to let people understand like, Hey, like this is, this is happening. Like we need to be paying attention to these things and uh, religious freedom for us in the West is almost something that we've kind of taken for granted for so many years. I mean, there's been cases like I mentioned yeah. before, but, you know, this kind of, um, you know, what I would call public lynching of a, you know, well-established individual like her that ha is happening in the West, the same kinds of things we see happening in the U.S., you know, this should really, right. this should raise some alarms with folks. So, yeah, you, you say, um, that what is a consider, this is one of your top line points. You say what is considered hate speech in the West is equivalent to blasphemy cases in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned that, uh, let's, let's talk about, uh, the concept of hate speech for a second, because mm -hmm. I think there's. I think there's some popular level confusion about this and I might be wrong about that, but uh, can you walk us through how you think about hate speech? What the, just the concept of it? Yeah. So I think you know, to like, when like I think a description, about, like a description of it and then in, like an evaluation of it. Yeah. I guess, you know, hate speech in these days, you're, you equivalent, you kind of equate that to, violence in words or you're offending someone's feelings or whatever 
um, or saying something that you is that shouldn't be, you don't, you shouldn't say it basically, or the public opinion thinks that you shouldn't say perceived public opinion shouldn't say it, that. But it hurts. I it's think, hurt. It hurts somebody's feelings. In other words, right, right. So whenever I think about hate speech, I think immediately is like, well, that's you know, uh, just limiting someone's you know ability to express themselves whether that's their religious ability, like you're through those hate speech laws, which thankfully we don't have any in the U S right now. Um, but to me, yeah. it's like, you're saying the, the, you're saying something or the, the proponents of these hate speech laws are saying that you're saying something that is um, evil and wrong and, you know, should not, should never be uttered the name that should never be uttered. Right. But who gets to define what that is? Right. I mean, I guess that's the big decision. The big point here is, who gets to decide what hate speech is? Who gets to define it? Like, at what point do you, like this general prosecutor of Finland is saying, essentially that, you know, the Bible is hate speech. Really? You know, mm -hmm. it's over the billions of people around the world that believe the Bible and, you know, or, you know, uh, go to church and worship God, you know, and this is what you're saying and should be banned, essentially. Are you kidding me? No. Yeah. So, um, so to me, like whenever I think of hate speech, my antennas go up immediately. Whenever I hear someone talk about it, I think of it immediately as a threat to the First Amendment, 100%, and everything that that entails. Because where does it stop from there? You know, does right. it go to freedom to assemble in the U.S.? Is it freedom to petition? All those things. Let's clarify something for the few left wingers that are uh, watching this, and they're they're. Uh, they're wondering if you're in the clan right now. Um, so are you in the clan? Let's get this out. You know, you have you <laughs> no, ever been a I'm member not. of the, of the Ku Klux Klan? Okay. I have never been. No. Um, have you ever tried to join? And they said, no, we don't have people <laughs> like that with your hair, with hair. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. My, my hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, all right. Sure. All right. I'm just checking. I'm just checking. Yeah. So just, so this is not uh, based on some kind of weird uh, thing. You're you, you're just like you're not a homegrown terrorist or anything like that. You're you're just like a normal guy, pretty much. I'm just a dude from Finland. So yeah. I went to college, and I love I love religious freedom. <laughs> well, there 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 is a complication in the United States. There's a thing called a protected category, and this is a root of a lot of. Um, I think a lot of the confusion we have about hate speech is, is the issue of protected categories and the protected categories just keeps growing and it's hard to keep up with it. Um, and you can, you can, a, a smart a political operative can pit these categories against each other where a bean counter, or a bureaucrat doesn't know what to do because the bean counter is just trying not to get sued. And the mm -hmm. courts are, I think, I think actually the courts are, some of the lower courts, I don't know about the Supreme Court, but the, I know a lot of the lower courts are contributing to mm -hmm. some of this confusion. But um, so you you have like sexual orientation is a is a protected category. Um, but then so is uh, national identity and so is color of your skin and so is race and mm -hmm. race might be different than the color of your skin. And um and religion is on there turns out religion is on that list yeah. okay so what could possibly go wrong here you know and 
what counts as a religion? You know, um, how do you know? How do you know what the official thing is? Like, like with a lot of these, uh, um, I hate to use the word because even just the word YouTube looks for this specific word. But recently there was there was a, a an issue of religious exemption. You could exempt out of um, a uh, uh, a procedure, a very simple medical procedure that that uh, that was mandated by employers. And I got a letter. I got a letter from Moore Park College mm. from Ventura County Community College District saying I was a bad person because I didn't get this procedure and I was being Did they use that word exactly? <laughs> they didn't use the word bad, but it was it, I, I think it was clear I was getting I was going to get disciplined if I didn't file an exemption paperwork mm. within a certain time period and I got the letter I think 48 hours but before the time period and i wasn't even teaching that semester at at they didn't offer me a class that semester so i wasn't even an active so they were telling me to comply with this when i wasn't even an active employee at the time mm -hmm. so but the issue of a religious exemption to something like that it, it, it just blows your mind i'm trying to imagine what i would say how much am i supposed to say um how how are you supposed to come up with and how are they supposed to evaluate whether this is a legitimate religious exemption like uh, you know if it's a, if it's a medical procedure yeah why isn't it just medicine right so it's really confusing i mean and and so when you get to hate speech um i i guess i hate i hate the word i hate the way they use hate because <laughs> because um it's like a hate crime. It's that same same issue with hate crime. If right. if if you're murdered, I I personally think love crimes should be illegal too. Because <laughs> like look if so if if someone murders someone from love, that that's a problem too. But you know, you know I mean I think the problem is murder. That, Getting you know, into the philosophy hello, discussion again. Hello. <laughs> You're dead. They murdered you. You know, uh, yeah. the question is, that's the only question is what, not whether you, uh, not, not whether, uh, you, you're murdered from a certain motivation, but, but just, you know, you're murdered, yeah. you know I mean? Anyway, but, um, yeah, it's that, that's a fascinating connection with, uh, hate speech. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, blasphemy. Yeah, it is then, like a religion because blasphemy is a religious term. Yeah, certainly. Are you I thinking mean, of hate, hate speech as a religious term? I think in the West it's being morphed into that. That's why I kind of say that there. It's like the equivalent of a blasphemy case in some other part of the world where blasphemy laws exist and they're used to muzzle people from expressing their uh, religious views, um, and sometimes even their non-religious views. A lot of atheists get hit with this a lot of times. Not everybody in Pakistan who grew up Muslim want to stay Muslim. Or mm -hmm. same thing with you know issues in India that we see with this. So there's there's multiple 
ways that you can kind of look at this, but essentially it's a muzzle that you can't say certain things that you, based on the, you know, the majority that kind of you're in, in that society. So if you're like, you know, when I was, when I was in Pakistan, actually, you know, you constantly, I'm meeting with Christians there and some, uh, some non-Christians and Hindus. And essentially if you're, uh, caught up in a conversation with, and it's not just even like all Muslims, you know, it's you know, certain sects of Muslims that are happen to be in the majority, they go after the other sects of Muslims. But, you know, if the conversation trails into religion, it's like immediately like the Christians just want to try to talk about something else, talk about politics or something completely different that just so that they don't somehow wind up saying the wrong thing and then literally there'll be a lynch mob at their door you know, to take them and their families and they use it constantly as a as a way to suppress them suppress the hindus suppress the christians you know all those religious minorities now i'm just talking about pakistan in general but this is how the blasphemy laws work yeah so you equate that to our western society like you know you go to a dinner party or something and you know can you express your christian views without getting lambasted you know um, by right. some way being called a bigot or something because you just hold to this view that, you mm -hmm. know, there's only two genders, male, Genesis one, male and female, he created them. So that's, you know, but so that's, that's when I kind of see that the, the similarities there are striking. So it's that group think it's that same. And at what point can you just accuse someone because this happens all the time like a lot of folks even in pakistan they may have not even said anything but just a mere um accusation of a blasphemy um uh, like uh, saying will land you in very hot water with the community it's, and not even like with the law enforcement at this point it's literally the rest of the community that's going to come after you nice. um so i those kinds of things when you when you see the par you can see the parallel that I'm drawing here, obviously, because you know how many times do you see maybe some prominent religious leaders in the U.S. make statements? Um, you know, it's fine to criticize, that's fine, but when you begin when it's this militant um, violence almost that you you're faced with, um, yeah, and that's I'm concerning. I'm sharing my screen and I'm going to add something to what you're saying because a lot of my students don't, they're not putting this together. Uh, a lot of this is just language. It, it's, it's not even as specifically uh, religious. I think a lot of time we're, we're trying to fit a lot into the first amendment as a, as a legal protection. Mm. But I want to say, it's really about the language. It's about the American language and law is rooted in language and, and, mm. and heritage. Any law, any language has a long heritage. Mm. Here's a, I'm, I'm sharing for those who can't listen, uh, can't hear, sorry, for those who are uh, not watching on YouTube, I'm sharing just my MacBook pro definition of marriage that was on my MacBook pro in 2013 when the Supreme court decided the marriage decision and this i later found out was just the oxford english dictionary a marriage a formal union between of a man and a woman typically recognized by law by which they become husband and wife and there's a secondary definition that's mm -hmm. a 2013 oxford english dictionary i have a 2015 hard copy mm -hmm. 
and that was the year that Obergefell versus Hodges was uh, handed down. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll just read the dictionary here. This is just the English language. The state of being husband and wife. That's Oxford English Dictionary, 2015. It's not the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's not the Bible. It's the English language. And what I love about dictionaries is, I'm, I'm you know, I just go next the go next door to man, and I'm just reading the dictionary. Mm-hmm. An adult human being, and then it also can mean just human being, a person of either sex. And then the example they give is all men are created equal. Like Thomas Jefferson. That of course we're coming up on July fourth. This is just language. I mean, I and I know that, you know, English is a lot of people who speak English are Christian, and maybe that has something to do with it. But I also have dictionaries in Chinese, and I have dictionaries in German, and I have dictionaries in Greek. I have an ancient mm-hmm. Greek one here, Latin, and what I don't like is when people are forced to talk differently right? by threat. I don't like that. I think that's manipulative. Yeah. And I don't like self-censorship either. I don't like that. What you're talking about with the self-censorship. Right. So. And then, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry if you had another thought there, but. Well, um, I mean, it's just, you know, I was like, just if. Typically what happens in language, Mm -hmm. if you pay attention to the dictionaries and you're a bilingual Mm -hmm. or maybe even trilingual, I I don't even know. But so bilingual people are are probably more attuned to this. Uh, Dictionaries are very important when you're learning another language. Um, Mm -hmm. You got to have a stable meaning so you can understand what the hell's going on. I mean, it's hard learning Mm -hmm. another language. Probably wasn't. When, when, how old were you when you learned English? I was well, kind of throughout my whole childhood. I mean, I was surrounded by it, but I guess yeah. really, really started to learn, probably like in second grade back in Finland. You start taking English courses or Swedish or whatever. Languages get introduced very early in in, in the Finnish school system. So, did you do you remember it being a painful experience, or would it, was it easy for you? I mean, you're so young. For me, I'd say like the English was not painful, um, and I think that's mostly because my father was already a was already an English speaker, and English was kind of a common thing at the house already in some ways. So I don't remember it being painful at all. So, in fact, I enjoyed it. I always liked languages, so but I never learned very very many. <laughs> well, I have a Funk and Wagnalls desk dictionary that I had on my on my desk when i was in elementary school when mm. you know in the 1980s yeah. yeah and uh i looked up the word gay recently and it just says happy cheerful kind mm-hmm. and i looked up marriage and union between a man and a woman by which they become husband and wife mm. and i told my i told my students i brought this to class and i said i think every marriage should be as gay as possible and they <laughs> Their eyes crossed and they, you know, it, and one kid said, Hey, you're, you're manipulating the language. And I said, no, no, I just read from the dictionary. I'm using the English language. 
Right. Now, I mean, when when it gets to the point when you're using the English language and people say that you're there's something wrong, you know, it, that's mm -hmm. it just so I'm just on a purely linguistic level. Mm. These are fundamental issues. Yeah. But I, I was going to make a point about definitions, though, because yeah, because, yes, as the word uh, words do sometimes take on an additional sense. Just mm -hmm. like, okay, Steve Jobs, he is in the grocery store and he's in the fruit section and he looks at the apple and he's like, I know I'm going to name my computer company after that fruit. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, now I'm on an apple, not the fruit, but the computer, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so that, that's an additional sense of, of the, of the, of how it works. Yeah. Usually it's layered on. It's a, that's why there's multiple senses of a term. Like in, in, mm -hmm. like I just showed you with the, uh, um, with the MacBook pro, there's two mm -hmm. senses of marriage there. And oftentimes it's come off. I looked at a really old dictionary and it, it can be any close union as a second definition of marriage. And mm -hmm. in, in an Oxford's man definition, there's two or three. Uh, they have uh, the definition that's gender neutral and they also have the definition that's just the male human, but they mm -hmm. also have like um, an exclamation. Like when you say, man, that's like, mm -hmm. that's crazy. Or there's different, there's different uses of the term and, and gay took on another use uh, yeah. to mean homosexual. Right. And then that's in the later dictionaries. But mm -hmm. my point is, is that that's an addition. They didn't take yeah. off the happy part. Because mm. it still means that too. Right. Otherwise right. you couldn't read these older <laughs> books and even understand what they're saying. I mean, because they use right. the term gay all the time. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, we had a gay old time, you know, and yeah. And, um, and so, but what, what it worries me is these words like marriage, they are changing the definition. They're not adding to it. In other words, they're taking that dick that this is just 2013. I mean, this is right. after this is after you were my student, years after. Yeah. The the dictionary I just showed you. And as a result of court decisions, they're totally replacing like scrubbing out like 1984 like as if it never existed. And right. these kids are looking online at these online dictionaries and they, they don't see the, the dictionary that was the definition that was there for hundreds of years. And I've yeah. looked, I've looked in the archives. I've, I've looked in the Claremont archives at really old dictionaries. I've looked at Black's Law Dictionary, 1891, Pope's from 1920 during segregation. I've looked at, uh, you know, no racial criteria in marriage at all, by the way. During, mm. slavery, during slavery mm -hmm. and Webster's 1828. And, and you got that stability in the language for so long. And then all of a sudden internet, someone updates it, it's gone. And the, I worry about the kids. I'm not worried about folks that are your age and younger or older. The kids are just, you know, glued to their phones and they're, you know, they don't even, they don't look at books. Yeah. And, it's the language. It's like the control of the language. Cause if you can control the language, you can control how people think and the perception. Yeah. Language matters 100%. And so how, 
how does yeah. America first fit into this? Like what's the, mm -hmm. I notice it's called America first. Mm -hmm. Your, um, your piece is published at America first. Yeah. How, how do we lead the way? Is that the sense we're leading the way or? Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, there's a number of different things that, you know, we could, you know, from religious freedom to others, I think we need to um, continue to safeguard it, you know, that not everybody thinks the way that some of the mainstream um, thinking might be presented or presented as mainstream thinking regarding uh, these, you know, old institutions like marriage, you know, that there are some serious religious pieces um, and just historical things that, um, that people adhere to. And I think the danger a lot of times is that when the, I guess in this case, the, the left tries to too often mandate a way of thinking, mandate yeah. a worldview that is only correct everything else beyond this is wrong and discussion about it is wrong also. So having any kind of, you know, alternative opinion, kind of what you were talking about already earlier, kind of this compelled speech, but maybe compelled thinking, maybe that's the word that you really want to, or the combination of words that you want to, you want to use there. That's scary. That's absolutely scary. I mean, it, it eliminates the, the place for debate. It eliminates the, the whole thing that actually um, facilitated the ability of that side to have those views, right? <laughs> the the free, right. the, the public square of ideas and thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. So now to move and to eliminate that uh, liberty and freedom for others or put things in place that would do that, and that's that's a that's a scary place to be in 100%. We've seen that throughout history. It never works out well. Freedom of speech is um, and all the basically the, the First Amendment freedoms, religion, speech, assembly, etc. All of that, that is the cornerstone of any free and open society that uh, is worth its salt. Um, without that, you're you're in bad trouble really, really quick. I think you've seen that 1930s Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. You've seen that, I mean, communist oh, yeah. China now, of course. Oh, yeah. You see that everywhere uh, where freedom is being con uh, constantly attacked. And having that compelled uh, attitude that you're only allowed to have this, no. So I can make up my own mind and my own opinions. You can disagree with me and you you can almost, you can dislike me if you like. You're free to do that. That's absolutely fine. Uh, but you will respect me and you will respect my ability to and my freedom to have those views and to hold on to the things that I hold dear. And I will do that for you as well. And I think part of it is there's a there's a there's just a lack of civility. You yes. know, people people can't, you know, how, how many times do you engage in like a theological or a political discussion? And immediately, if you say, well, I lean right or I lean left. Um, you start putting labels on that individual. You start putting right. all those things that, you know, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, all these um, propaganda outlets say, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. that you should think about something or someone. Um, and I think that, that that's 
process of discussion and civility has just been lost, but that's why freedom of speech is so important because it safeguards that. You should have that. So, Matthias, what was your time like at UCLA? I don't think I, I ever a, talked to you about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I had a great experience. I mean, obviously it's, it's very left leaning in many ways, you know, it's a, it's a regular public college, but, you know, I always felt very proud to be a Bruin and I still do. Like I had a great experience there and um, that's good. I studied history and political science and you felt respected. I, I only had a Welcome. few professors that I didn't really like. Uh, well, that I felt like that there was um, definitely some strong bias and that my views would not be respected. I remember I took one of my capstone okay. courses for, I think it was, it was in my history uh, degree. Um, remember we, it was about the history of conservatism. And I remember my okay, professor. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was, it was funny, but, but, you know, he, he, I looked, took one look at the list of literature and it was like some of the worst pieces of, you know, conservative literature that you can think of to paint the movement as, and I was like, this is, you know, and everybody knew who was a, who knew their stuff, at least, you know, like, like this is this is funny like the the agenda is all too clear here but anyway that was my only kind of negative experience in it but regardless i still i had a overall a very positive experience and i liked it definitely i good good professors for the most part so that i could tell anyway so yeah i'm i mean i'm coming at this as an educator thinking about the the problems with the the free speech and the free exercise. And my, my main issue is uh, what I see in the classrooms and on campuses and now in corporate culture too, it's really bad in corporate culture is that right. there's, there's almost like a robot type of talking and mm. uh, there's a heavy policing and uh, of speech. And I think at the corporate level, it's, um, sometimes enthusiastic in a really weird, creepy way Yeah, where, where people are excited about the BS. It's, mm. I mean, everybody knows it's BS, but they get excited about it because they think they're going to get a pay raise or something. I don't know what, but it's, right. it's, it's like, I'm really disturbed that the, the colleges and universities are pumping out this, um, and I don't know what to do about it, but I, I don't like the, the chill in the classroom when I say something obviously true. Mm. And I've brought in the, I've brought in like 20 dictionaries into the classroom right. Right. and I've seen them look around and they could not believe right. that it says a woman is a, a human female. Yeah. And that's just, that's just the language and or whatever, <laughs> or, or wife is or a, a widow. Like I look up yeah. wife and widow and they're, they're looking up widow. And I say, do you know what a widow is? And they're like, it's a woman who has lost her husband and has not remarried. That's what a widow is. Uh, I look up sham marriage. Yeah. This is in a dictionary with the pride colors across it. Right. And this is one of my favorite examples. And um, <laughs> I wrote about this on, did I write about this on Substack? I, I think I'm writing a piece on Substack. I'm going to publish it, but, but yeah. they, this particular Black's Law Dictionary, it was after a court decision. Um, 
scrubbed, totally scrubbed the uh, uh, the one that was, you know, uh, for hundreds of years, um, long time legal mm. dictionary, and uh, just replaced it, replaced mm -hmm. it. But they didn't replace all of. I I looked through and and it says sham marriage. Mm. A sham because this is an issue with fraudulent marriage is an issue in law because yeah. uh like for immigration and yeah. uh and in the military because you get benefits mm -hmm. and sham marriage is defined as uh, as a couple who goes through all the formal requirements but has no intention of living together as husband and wife. Interesting. <laughs> and, I was, and I pointed this out. I was like, you know, yeah. and and widow, you know, for example, it's a and a widower is right next to it. Yeah. It's yeah. Opposite. And and I, I was pointing out that you can tell, you can you can see, yeah, the language is it, it's still fresh because a yeah. lot of these same sex couples they haven't had their their partner die yet. Mm. That's how that's how fresh this is. That's why they haven't changed. Yeah. It right. And, 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 you know, I don't mind, like I said, I don't mind the evolution of the language. What I don't, what right. I don't like is the, the, chill. the erasing of the, yes, yeah. the erasing and, mm -hmm. and the, the chill and, and yeah. the people looking around and can I say this? And yeah, I, right. I try to get my students to just say, look within, look within. Right. That's who you should be looking at to ask if I can say this. Don't, don't look over there. Don't look over there. Look right. within what do you really believe? What do you think? Mm -hmm. And, and if you can't do that in the classroom, if we can't do that as a society and a culture, yeah, I'm not sure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So this yeah. seems to be like a human problem and I'm not sure yeah. it's really a problem here. I'm not sure how America can lead the way. Do you have any thoughts about that? How America can lead the way, man. Yeah. Um, in some ways, like, you know, if we don't get it right at home, then our credibility internationally is, you know, uh, kind of tarnished in that way. But you got to be able to got to be able to um, take the fact that, you know, you're um, um, going to be free to be offended. You know, I'm, you got to be able to be take other opinions and we got to get over ourselves with. Um, we can disagree and we can be offended by other people's um, opinions or whatever they want to say. But at the end of the day, there's that mutual respect that continues to be. And I think if we can restore that, you know, I kind of mentioned that civility into conversation. I think that that's one of the great ways that we can do. We can lead the way. Um, mm -hmm. I think continuing to champion, you know, uh, all the values that I think really made America very unique, especially when it was founded, all those uh, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, all those First Amendment stuff, the Bill of Rights, all of those. Um, did we have it perfect from the beginning? Of course not. No one's I don't know that anybody's ever said that we had it perfect. Uh, we don't have it perfect now either, but we're we're right. doing our best. But I think it's as long as the value piece is being driven and that's being instilled um i think that that's the best way that you can lead you can lead forward in the world not just you know domestically but internationally values that's what yeah. it's about so 
Um, I'm going to add to what you said, yeah. just if it's okay. You don't have to, obviously you don't have to, yeah. you know me, uh, yeah. but when people say uh, we had it right at the founding, um, I, I fully, I'm fully on board with that, with the principles. Mm-hmm. I want to add to that, that I really do believe that there was a special work uh, of God, of the Lord in, in Agreed. that in the in the mid to late eight uh 1800s with the founding of the republican party mm-hmm. because the founding of the republican party tried to correct some really fundamental problems that that uh, the founders thought would go away like for yeah. example with slavery right and uh and they they had an enormous task um and they uh they had some success they they did end slavery and mm-hmm. they were able to move the ball down the road a bit but there was enormous opposition and it came at great cost and um so great when cost. i think yeah when i think of july 4th i think of all mm-hmm. of that yeah. um and i that's what i that's what I think of. It's the promise of the future to try to Mm -hmm. protect religious liberty. And I I would put in the second amendment too there. I don't know how you feel about that. Oh, I I love the second amendment 100%. Now, did you feel that way when you were at Moorpark college? Oh yeah. I'm a firm believer in the second amendment. Absolutely. Absolutely. It it would be interesting. It would be interesting to see, America first on that. Like, I don't know how that would work. Do you, what do you think? There's already okay. stuff out there that we put out on it. I'd need to send Is that it over really well. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. But like, how could minute. we? How could we lead the way for places like England and Australia and New Zealand and just the well, Anglo think, Anglo countries like Canada? So, well, I mean, if, if this debate too is like it, you know, does getting rid of guns make people less violent? The issue is that people are violent and there are evil people in the world. So if it's not guns, it's knives or bats or something else that they're going to find. Or or governments. The issue is a human (laughs) issue. Yeah. Yeah. But the issue is a human issue. It's not a gun issue. It's, it's always, it's, it's the, the fall of man, quite frankly, the corruption of man that, that is at the heart of the issue here. So this is me, Matias personally kind of speaking here, but as I think about it, and I'm not an expert in the second amendment, but you know, obviously it's something that we're bombarded with all the time, but I feel that this, you know, the, um, it's a human issue. That's what yeah. it is. Yeah. And I mean, I would love to see, and it's true because there's a lot of studies, you know, guns do prevent crimes. Of course they do, you know, otherwise, you know, secret service and the others wouldn't have guns on them, you know, <laughs> So right. obviously they protect people and there's been numerous cases when women have been able to defend themselves against an attacker, a potential rapist, um, we, that they were able to defend themselves. And I think that's a, right. another kind of fundamental right that I should be able to do that, not just for myself, but for my family, you know, yeah. an intruder or somebody wants to break into my home and I don't know their intentions. I should be able to defend myself and, Right. You know, have the right to do that 100 um, percent. 
Also, the responsibility, I would say, the responsibility to get trained. Yeah, because it is it is a skill. I mean, you have a right to drive a car, but you also have the responsibility to drive safely and to know what you're doing to get the training that you need. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I I like to hunt, so I go. But, you know, I went through training courses for that and I thought they were fantastic. They were very useful. Learned a whole lot. And especially for someone like me who doesn't have a lot of background in that. Being able to go through that and have experienced teachers kind of walk you through this is how this is the right way to go about it. I think that was fantastic, very useful. So, responsibility, integrity, and having all those, you know, having instilling yeah. the responsibility to handle something like a firearm. That's yeah. that's the core of it. But like I said, it's a human issue. That's that's the issue that we have. Yes, that's right. And I, what to to link this with the the First Amendment issues is. Uh, when people have the wrong view about the second amendment, I think it's because they have a problem with believing a default belief that the state has some kind of omniscience on preventing crime or whatever, Mm -hmm. some, some kind of expertise for every situation and an, and a competence that they just mm-hmm. don't have. And we see this in, in England and, and, and I don't know about Canada. I think, think, you know, Canada seems like it's a pretty safe place for the most part, but, but people will encounter crime unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And the point is, is not how often it happens. It's, it's when it does happen, do you have a mm-hmm. right to try at least you might not be successful, but do you have a right to try to defend yourself? And, and I I find that people just have that flipped on its head as almost as if you try, you're the criminal. And it's like, no, no, that's, that's to get criminality wrong. That that's the opposite of what criminality is. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, there's a distinction between the criminal and the victim and you have to preserve that. What do you think about Mm -hmm, that? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I think I agree with you 100%. So, you know, there's, you got to have the distinctions there. And uh, fundamentally, like if, you know, and, you know, you think about kind of the gun laws, like if you're a criminal, are you going to really abide by the gun laws, you know, and are you able to, are you going to get a firearm regardless of what the gun law says, you know, Um, if it's a gun free zone, are you are you as a criminal going to respect the fact that it's a gun free zone? I think not if you're a criminal. Um, the motives of men or human beings. So, all right, we're back. Sorry, what were you no saying? worries. So yeah, Second Amendment issues. I think I was saying that I don't think you know you can't legislate righteousness. You can't legislate morality in that sense. You can enforce good things. You can enforce laws that are good, but laws don't make people good. You know, they have to decide to be good and they have to decide to do the right thing, period. And for those of us who decide to do the right thing every day, I think we should be afforded the ability to defend our right to do that and hold to those. And be able to express it and argue about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matthias, I'm so, man, I'm so excited to see you. And it's so nice to talk to you and hear your voice again. And, and I'm just struck with, it seemed like when you were at Moorpark College, you were just like, 
you had so much energy. That's how I remember you. You were just like <laughs> bouncing off the walls. Yeah. And you are so just chill right now. You're just like, <laughs> you've settled into adulthood and you're just, I know you were an adult back then, but you know, you're, everybody's like I a get kid a to me. Different level of adult, I guess. So Yeah, I guess so. But, but yeah. Kids, kids and a wife can mellow you down and kind of bring a little bit more perspective, I suppose. But yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your work and what you've been up to and your yeah, I mean, thanks for what you're doing. Thank you for having me. It was so great to connect and just love. This is my heart. This is my heartbeat, the religious freedom. So whenever you want to talk, always happy to talk. So there'll oh, be more stuff it. coming out from our end. So okay, that that's great. I I would look forward to that.